0: First of all, I want to thank you for, for taking a minute and uh, coming to join us here in Vancouver. A true honour to have you on this stage, real privilege for everybody in the audience, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, to uh, taking this conversation in a variety of directions. Now, this morning we had the honour of chatting with your counterpart, um, the 22nd Prime Minister of Canada, Stephen Harper, and you two both had to carry your countries through arguably the most complex crisis, financial crisis, that a modern country had ever faced. And I know it brought you very close together. And I know you were here this morning for that conversation. And I actually want to revisit a lot of the same content that Prime Minister Harper and I talked about, because I just, for me to fully understand a concept, the more perspectives, the diverse opinions that I can hear on that subject matter, the more informed I become. Does that sound like fun. Yes. Definitely. All right. All right. Good. It's so, a great chat, by the
1: way. Huh? It's a great conversation this morning with Stephen Harper. Congratulations for that. It was super fun. You were a very good fun. interviewer, definitely.
0: I love well. doing it. Right. <laughs> Communion, right? Yeah. All right. So uh, before we jump into that, I just want to talk about about balance a little bit because, you know, let's revisit 2008 a little bit, and I just want to get inside your mindset, right? You're you're put in a situation when you're hit with a crisis like that. It's not unlike the crisis we're in today where you have to make a decision, right? You have to make a decision to start spending and stimulating, right, and try to rebuild the economy by mortgaging the financial future of the next generation. So you're borrowing from the future to finance the present. And that's got to be an incredibly challenging decision and debate that you have in your mindset. So, can you share any thoughts on how you approach, how you approached that scenario and how you balance those two very important points?
1: Yeah, well, first, uh, let me say that I'm very happy to be here today. Uh, I enjoy very much the conversation today and I know that there are a lot of people investing in Mexico in mining and also uh, I want to congratulate the Mine Explorer because you are very brave uh, very audacious, on I admire you very much. And talking about that difficult moments in 2008 and 9, for me was like a, the perfect storm, because we had the crisis, the economic crisis, when I was seeing the figures in my computer, the economy was going down by 10% uh, quarter after quarter in 2009, 10% negative. Uh, at the same time, it was a perfect storm because we, we had, at that moment, the outbreak of the flu H1N1 in Mexico City. That's right. And at the same time, the wave of crime in Mexico, homicides, and so on, but it mm. was a quite difficult decision. But in the economic side, you are asking for, honestly, I'm more conservative in the sense I prefer equilibrium, no? I don't like... Equilibrium. Deficit. Yes, equilibrium. But at that moment, it was clear for us that we need to rescue the economy, we need to push forward very much, and we increase definitely the expenditure, public expenditures. But the crucial point is you cannot take public deficit as a permanent measure. You need to think that it's a transitory measure. As long as you keep on mind your own responsibility with future generations, you can go right. So indeed, in that year, 2009, we uh, started to invest a lot in infrastructure, for instance, in Mexico, we didn't stop that. We supported the poorest families in Mexico, providing them with a, an income to face the crisis in a better way. We put in place several programs to establish some transitory or uh, jobs either people like uh, cleaning the roads or cleaning the archaeological sites and open afterwards to the public, by the way, or preventing forest fires uh, and teams, things like that. With the companies, the automotive companies or an electronic manufacturing companies, export-oriented towards the United States, started to close. So in order to avoid uh, unemployment, we talk with the with the workers, we talk with the companies, and say, well, if the company accepts to pay one-third of the salary to the worker instead to fire him, and the worker accepts to receive one-third less, okay. the federal government accepted to pay the other-third. And in that way, we were able to save half a million formal jobs in the export-oriented sector. But for in order to do so, we needed money. So we." push uh, the throttle and spend it like a 4% of GDP additional, which was a huge amount of money. But once we started to see that the economy was going to recover, once we see that the inflection point was reached, we started to reduce that deficit. And it is painful. Uh, how to do that, it's a very old recipe that any businessman here, any, uh, People at home or the nation knows what is the recipe. It's an old one. You need to increase your revenues and you need to reduce your expenditures. And in politics, it's quite painful. In politics, that means you have to be the bad guy. Yes, and uh, you need to raise taxes, for instance, and you need to reduce some expenditures. So I decided to pay the political costs in doing so, instead of give a legacy of indebtedness for the future generations. And yes, we were able to close the deficit in Mexico at the point that when I left office in 2012, the public deficit in Mexico was 0.6% of GDP, almost zero. So we reached equilibrium again, and that's the key issue. Yes, in a moment of crisis, as an exceptional measure, you need to increase the deficit under the condition that you will reduce the deficit again
0: in, for the medium and long term. Now, it feels like to me, I agree with you, and I know that's what you did, and I know that's what Prime Minister Harper did, but that there's been a shift in mentality in that regard. Would you agree that today, it seems, our politicians think about deficits and think about debt with a lot more leniency, mm. right? And this is prior to the pandemic, it's not pandemic-related, but they approach this with a lot more leniency than they used to, and why is that?
1: I don't know, but what is happening is current deficit regarding pandemic reaction, uh, in my opinion, have taken too much time in order to be close. Mm -hmm. And what is happening is, once the pandemic is getting to an end, suddenly we have the Ukrainian, the Russian invasion on, on Ukraine and we are facing another crisis, and maybe the economists and the government are not prepared to face new uh, negative environment. And the problem is, when you are in office, you have the temptation for expenditure. So the explanation is quite clear. You can compare, what do you do with your credit card, no? So the fancy way to use credit card is signing, no? You have a party, you sign. You go to the restaurants, uh, or a trip, you sign. Uh, the real problem is to pay mm-hmm. the credit card. Uh, it's the same with governments. So when mm-hmm. when when you are running a public deficit, you are signing and signing the credit card of the country. Not your credit card, but someone somewhere yeah. else, the right. Mexicans uh, yes. account. But um, for a lot of people, they are going to leave office with a bunch of debts for someone else. Someone else's problem. And so the incentives is to keep public deficit as a permanent measure and not to reduce the deficit. You need courage and responsibility to reduce. It's like, a, it's like a weapon with one single shot, no? The deficit. Yeah. Once you use it, you need to reload, and in order to reload, you need to uh, pay the cost of that, and if you need the, the weapon reloaded as long as you want to prevent another
0: uh threat to whatever you are protecting. So yeah. that's the idea. Okay, I'm with you. And you, you mentioned Russia, Ukraine. I want to I wanna go down that road next. Can we do that? Yeah. Okay, so let's start with, um, we spoke about this this morning, uh, very, very unprecedented event. Um, and again, I'm not saying it wasn't warranted. Not, not at all, that's not the point. But United States and, and Europe froze about $600 billion of, of USD reserves from Russia. And pr- probably the right thing to do. However, I'm curious about the message that sent to central banks all over the world because I'm wondering, if I was in that situation, say I'm, I'm Norway, right, or I'm Israel, right, and I'm thinking, I've always thought my USD reserves were the most safe asset I could hold, and suddenly, something's happening over there telling me maybe I'm wrong. You know, if you look at the list, so sure, Russia's deemed a bad actor for good reasons, but if you look at the list of bad actors, deemed by the United States in the last 50 years, Israel's on that list, France is on that list, right? Germany's on that list, like, it goes on. Every present-day ally is on that list, right? So, the world can change. So, does this change the mindset of central banks, therefore, in terms of the U.S. dollar as the safe-haven asset class? Well, definitely,
1: um, thanks God, I'm not a central bank manager, but if I were one, I would say that mm, the first time, at least in a very long time, that the dollar is used for political or diplomatic reasons, which actually, it was not happening before. So, if I were that manager, probably I would think I need to diversify my own reserves or my assets from the dollar. However, what I see is uh, it's not going to happen in the short and the medium term first, because there is not an alternative currency that can take the properties and the value of the dollar. Not in the short term, not in the medium, maybe not in the long term. I don't see any country with the capacity to take loan debts, to, to issue such kind of currency able to pay anything. I don't see the convertibility, the liquidity of the dollars represented in someone, someone else's uh, currency. Look at the euro, for instance, the euro is running exactly the same risk because yeah. uh, the Americans and the Europeans took exactly the same decision frozen or freezing the the Russian reserves. So there will be definitely in the long term a rational decision to uh, diversify the assets, mm-hmm. to diversify the reserves, but not in the short term. The other alternative could be the yuan, the Chinese currency. but. Honestly, I don't see that anyone trying to escape him from political risk associated with your currency is going to jump into the Chinese currency, because there are a lot of political risks with authoritarian regime, with without transparency,
0: as President, Prime Minister Harper was saying today with you. I'm with you. Now, uh, one asset class I would ask you about, and I agree with you completely, there is no alternative. That's the issue. So, it's a long-term problem that has to be solved, if it's a problem at all. But Would you therefore expect central banks to continue, as they have been doing, to increase their gold holdings? Do you think that's a trend that we will see more of? Probably, uh, definitely
1: central banks need to diversify their assets. Uh, Depending on the markets, they are going to, foreign currencies, specifically dollars, but also uh, gold and metals. And I don't know what is going to happen, for instance, with a new trend regarding the uh, digital currency okay. or digital assets issued by the central banks I'm not talking about cryptocurrencies' it's quite complicated right. that. yes but a central bank could go could jump into that and I wonder you are very familiar I don't know very well the mining industry, but uh, I wonder if it is possible to take the advantages, the safetyness of the cryptocurrency you know, the blockchain and other stuff yeah and at the same time to support, to, to back an issue of digital currencies with metals, with gold, silver, or a basket of that, that right. could be. But definitely central banks are going in the future to go to issue digital currencies. Uh, maybe some of those digital currencies will be supported with assets of the bank, including gold and other metals.
0: That could be a trend. Right, I mean, that would take a big philosophy shift, I believe, to back a currency with a hard asset again, right, Um, and I agree with you. Now, we're moving towards central bank-issued digital currencies, I I agree 100%. Um, you know, I, I think the we think about our currency as digital today because everything happens on our phones. It's it's not. It's just a digital ledger for a physical money, and so if we move to a true digital currency, this would allow privileges to code behavior into that currency that doesn't exist today. Do you, in your mind, have any? Is there any upsides, any positives, or any negatives when it comes to central bank issued digital currencies? Well, an
1: upside, I believe, is the transaction costs could go down dramatically. And it could be much easier to issue those currencies and manage those in your funds. Instead, we have cash, ITMs, and all the problems associated with, uh, with cash, including uh, laundry money. That would be an advantage. This uh, advantage could be uh, I'm not an expert on that, but where could be the control of such currencies? So what could be the way to to do that? Honestly, we need to explore that, but definitely what I see is, is going to happen very soon, that the central bank is going to go to use digital currencies very soon, that's my, my impression.
0: And I can see most upsides and downsides. Okay, I agree with you on that. Now, Um, Let's get back to the energy sanctions on Russia. Um, You know, the corporations actually in the United States were very quick to impose their own sanctions before the United States government did. But eventually they did too and, and banned the import of Russian oil and gas. Europe wants to, but it's a much harder game, and Europe's the most vulnerable right now in this crisis. They're also stuck between a rock and a hard place in that they can't take their they can't remove their supply of Russian gas. They don't have another option, right? Um, So, when you hear politicians in Europe saying, we're moving away from Russian oil and gas immediately, is this just lip service? Is there any substance to that? What is their alternative? What do you think?
1: We We need to remember that, in my opinion, all those things are much better than putting troops in the field. I think it's no one democracy is able today to pay the political cost to do so. So I prefer any and all combination of economic sanctions uh, on that. And I I see the point, and you had a conversation with Stephen this morning about that uh, Europe can threats saying that we are not going to buy any more oil or natural gas from Russia. Maybe it's not possible or feasible in the short term, I agree, but you need to say that. And you need to establish a uh, reliable threat, uh, a credible one, in order to prevent, in order to modify the behavior of someone like Putin. So, and I believe, uh, yes, it's not gonna be possible this year, but Europe, can restart its uh, nuclear power plants. They need to do so, Germany in particular. Mm. They need to reconsider their decisions. They need to build up quickly, faster than they are doing already, renewable. I do believe that it's possible to build a very important source of, uh, of energy in that matter. And they need to take another strategy in order to import natural gas, basically LNG, from different parts of the world. I agree. The European countries needed to do so 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when it was absolutely clear that Russia was gonna be a threat for all of them. Mm. Now, even it's late, it's time to do so, and they need to build their independence from Russia. Whatever could be the outcome, of the Russia-Russia invasion. I believe in the, my perception is, if I need to bet, is there will be very important battles and a lot of blood in the second part of this year, unfortunately, Ukraine. Russia is not going to withdraw its troops from Ukraine, but it's not going to have more relevant advances, in my opinion, so there will be like a, like a frozen situation that, but whatever could be the outcome, or maybe the Russian finally got the control of the entire country or to start to invade another country would be horrible or just are defeated by the support of the occidental countries or the Ukrainians, I don't know, but whatever could be the outcome, Europe and the rest of the world need to be prepared to be independent from Russia. We cannot afford to live or to live together with such a crazy guy with such an amount of power. Mm. We cannot afford to live and uh, sleep together with a man which is able to push a bottom that is threatening the entire human being and at the same time depend on paying his capricious. Because the European paying for the oil and paying for the natural gas are paying the Russian war. Mm-hmm. Which is Catastrophic, it's quite paradoxical. They need to be, they need to live out of there. It doesn't take one, three, or five years. They need to take the decision now and announce it, announce it and um, build on a reliable
0: and credible threat over Russia. Now, do you think this is a catalyst for what we'd call like the new Cold War, right? We're seeing new divisions drawn on the yeah. map and new alliances formed. and. You know, I'm very curious about the long-term implications of just basic geopolitical relations and how the board might be rearranged. Yeah. Do you see something similar? Yeah, well,
1: uh, definitely there will be new alliances. A new... Uh, def- now, the most important incentives for the European countries to join NATO has been Putin. Putin persuaded Uh, Finland and Sweden in 15 days to join (laughs) the European Union and NATO uh, in a way that took probably two or three decades to persuade them. So their new collective alliance between the Europeans, the United States, Canada, I'd say the responsible democracies. And on the other side definitely there will be a bloc integrated by Russia and China. Uh, And actually, all the money that is rejected, all the economic measures, all the imports that are rejected, but the Occidental bloc, let me say that, are taken by China, definitely. Exports of minerals, among other things, but also natural gas and oil is now taken by China with a great advantage, and definitely China will support the Russians, at least for a period. I'm not quite sure how far they can get how far the the Chinese government and people, the Chinese government or the Chinese leader, will support Russia. Let's say that, suppose that Putin makes a crazy thing, like launching a a weapon of massive destruction over one town of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Nuclear or gas or these absurd machineries of destroying people that they are able to build. I don't see that Chinese Communist Party would be very happy with that. So having a superpower threatening everyone else and that. But definitely there will be new blocks. One is this Russia and China, and their allies. A lot of them in Latin America, by the way. Mm -hmm. Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, I hope. Uh, Not Mexico, where where is something that I can, something like that, okay, no? But there will be
0: new blocks, a new, New Cold War or Warm War, <laughs> Okay, now can I ask you a question just about about Putin's mindset and, and your opinion on this? You know, everybody's saying he made a massive miscalculation by starting this hot war. He misjudged the response from the West. He didn't think it would be as aggressive as it was. Uh, maybe he had bad information about the strength or unity of the Ukrainian army. Clearly his army hasn't been as organized as maybe he thought it was. Do you think it was a miscalculation? Do you think it was? And here's where this question comes from. I recently interviewed a gentleman named George Friedman. He's a geopolitical analyst and former CIA. And and he said, if you put yourself in Putin's scenario, in Putin's situation, he felt like his back was against the wall. Because the only protection that Russia has is land. And when you remove those border countries, which now include Ukraine, that buffer is gone. It used to take seven months for troops who invaded Russia to make it to Moscow. Now it takes a couple of days, right? So Putin felt like for the sovereignty of his nation, and every nation has an existential fear, right? In the United States and Canada, it's probably recession. In Russia, it's invasion, right? Um, You know, it's the Ukrainian land that stopped Napoleon, right? It's the Ukrainian land that stopped Hitler from invading Moscow. So, if you put yourself in his shoes, do you think he felt like he had no option but to try to take that land back? What do you think?
1: No, I don't think so, definitely. Trying to be in Putin's mind. I, no, let me change that. Because I, I think his mind is not very well this day. Uh, but definitely, no, what he's looking for, in my opinion, is his legacy. Uh, maybe he's, uh, I, I met Putin several times, he went to Mexico to the G20, we organized there. Uh, let me tell you that at the beginning, as uh, Stephen Harper said, he was smart, pragmatical, intelligent. But now what I see in his statements, the way he is sitting down, like at 20 meters in front of, of his counterpart, uh, these kind of phobias, and paranoids, he's not in good health, definitely. And he is able to destroy anything in order to get some kind of legacy, positive legacy with the Russians, with the rest of the world is completely lost. But the legacy he wants to build, in my opinion, is to rebuild the old SARS Imperium, to rebuild the old Soviet Union at any price. And that's the reason why he started attacking Ukraine and Crimea before, and he can continue to do so with other nations. Mm. I remember when I was a senior fellow at Kennedy School at Harvard, uh, Graham Allison, a great people, very smart, Used to invite every single week the most relevant senior people, former CIA directors, and so on. Once he invited an admiral who was in charge of the uh, in military intelligence of the United States in NATO, and uh, he say a very cruel joke. We say we spent like several years trying to persuade Putin that putting American troops close to the border to Russia didn't imply any risk for Russia. Hmm. And we realized in 15 minutes when he invaded Crimea, that he knew absolutely everything about that. There was no threat for Russia. Everybody was thinking, no, uh, six years ago, before Crimea, no, he's not going to do that. He he doesn't dare to do that. And finally invaded Crimea. What happened later? Nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And it was evident he was, he was going to take the next step to invade Ukraine or something else. And the world was not prepared for that. And again, he is not going to dare to invade. No, definitely not the Americans will react. Nothing happened. Mm-hmm. So the, the boldest thing and the most interesting one is all these economic sanctions we are talking about. Never before. But I, I wonder if those sanctions are enough to stop or deter him. Look what is happening with Cuba with the blockage or blockade or whatever. Um, it's not happening very substantial thing. So yes, I believe the Occidental part underestimated Putin's behavior. Mm-hmm. I believe that uh, what is leading or this moving Putin is ambitious and the desire to build a legacy with their own, his own people. And he is losing his coach in the sense yes, he used used to be pragmatical but now he's beyond pragmatical thing. He is taking high risk, campaign a very high cost. Mm-hmm. Maybe that is was not that was not in his plans, but is to to honest I believe he's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> crazy people used to do crazy things, including <laughs> for instance, our parents were absolutely prepared for the Cold War, no? The net zero game in which nobody will dare to launch a nuclear attack mm-hmm. because the response was gonna be exactly proportional and reciprocal and everybody will be destroyed, right? That kind of mind, I believe, doesn't prevail today. Look at this. What happened if Putin launches a nuclear attack over any part of the world? Do you believe that the Americans or the French or who is going to respond? Suppose it's a small city in Ukraine. Do you believe that the Americans are going to launch a nuclear attack? That President Biden, we have the support of the people Mm. or sending troops in the field? The moment that one soldier, young soldier, come back to the United States, die, kill, the political support will be eroded. So now the scenario is changing, and Putin knows that. Putin knows that if he dares to advance and invade, he is not going to take a proportional response from the other parties and from the other countries. And that's exactly happened. I hope that he is not thinking in
0: bolder steps, but uh, I'm not quite sure about that. No doubt. President Calderon, this has been fascinating. I want to thank you for joining me up on stage today. Let's give a round of applause, please. Thank you very much, Thank you. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.